Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, once again we ask that you would help us to honestly look at your word and to think about what we see here. Give us your courage, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We just read together some really striking words from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Sounds quite threatening. We see how astonishing these claims are when we look at what the Pharisees had to say. The Pharisees had ascertained that there are exactly 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Of those 613, 248 are commandments to do something positively, and 365 were prohibitions, what you shall not do. Now, to make sure they did not break any of these 613 commandments, the Pharisees then added a group of extra commandments, a kind of a hedge or a fence around the law. So if you added all these other commandments, you could be more certain that you did not break any of the 600. Uh, So, for example, with regard to the Sabbath, they added 39 very specific requirements of what you may or may not do on the Sabbath. For example, how far you may walk on the Sabbath. Jesus said, our righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. Does that mean we need 40 extra rules about the Sabbath instead of a mere 39? And then look at some of the astonishing claims Jesus made in the rest of the passage that was just read for us. Uh, He gave some examples of what this greater righteousness would look like. He said, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, his examples here point out that what God is interested in is not something external, it's something more interior or internal. Uh, What Jesus is looking for here, what I believe the 10th commandment is looking for here, is a change inside of us that surpasses a mere external righteousness that has to do with keeping hundreds of commandments. In saying this, Jesus was really not saying something new. He was saying what was always said in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. This means God wants to have his law written inside of us, as we read from Jeremiah a few moments ago. The Ten Commandments were not merely an external moral code that comes to us. They are to be written inside of us so that we have the desire to really feel it fulfill them. We are to love God's law. Now, as we think about the 10th commandment, I think one of the things we should notice that it really applies to all of the nine that came before it. It is number 10, probably for a reason, because it refers backwards to the nine that came before it as the principle of how we should interpret the previous nine commandments. Now, only two are specifically mentioned, about murder and adultery, but they're they're probably taken as examples of how we're supposed to have the right desires in relationship to all the commandments. We should not, for example, even want to give false testimony. We should not even want to steal. Now, as we think about this and try to uh, just reflect on this, 
I think there are a number of principles we see in the rest of the Bible that will help us to come to grips with this terribly demanding commandment. The first is one that's really already implicit. What I said is that sin comes from inside of us. Sin does not come from out into us. Sin comes from inside of us and comes into action through our words, especially our words, but everything else we do as well. Jesus said in Matthew 15, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. These make a man unclean. And he goes on, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Sin comes from deep within. Of course, it's very painful to recognize that about ourselves. Now, the Pharisees wanted to build a hedge or a fence around about 600 commandments so that you would not accidentally break one. Jesus says, no, he wants to have God's law written into our hearts so they're part of how we really think and feel about things. So you might wonder, what should be in our hearts in place of coveting, in place of improper desires? And I think the, the best biblical answer is that what should fill our hearts should be thankfulness and gratitude. Now, to God and to other people, thankfulness inside of us will lead to the opposite of coveting. It will lead to proper actions. It is the desire that shapes us into the kind of people God wants us to become. And with that, of course, comes love for the people God has placed in our lives. If we love other people, we won't want to kill them or steal from them or lie against them somehow. So that's the first principle. But a second principle is that we should see that strong desires are not in themselves evil. Sometimes we're a little afraid of having strong desires. I'm not sure exactly why, but I think I see that among us. And we seem to think, well, any strong desire might be an evil desire, but that's not what we see here. It's we're to have the right desires to replace the wrong desires. Now, I'll, I'll pick one that will be a little bit painful for us to talk about. Some things in the Bible are painful for us to talk about. That's the topic of strong sexual desire. Now, the Bible presents strong sexual desire as good if it's for your spouse, but wrong if it's for someone who is not your spouse. I'll take an example, and this will be more explicit than most of us like to hear in church. This comes from Proverbs 9. It says of a man, May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. The Bible is very explicit. That's the kind of desire that is a very strong desire. It's good. So it's not desires that are wrong. It's inappropriate desires that are wrong or falsely directed desires that are wrong. Our proper desires should be motivated, should should arise out of thankfulness and love. A third principle that runs through this commandment is that God knows our hearts. Now, I'm sure we all know that. Be sure, I think we all know that God knows the heart, and I even suspect that unbelievers know that some of the time. It's why they feel uncomfortable with the world. But we can talk about that. God knows our hearts. He knows what's inside of us. Um, and that's what leads to a lot of our problems, is what's inside of us. We have to see a change in inside. In Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, we read, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. 
You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Well, before we say it, God knows what's in our heart. If we covet or if we're thankful, either way, God knows. The fourth principle that I think will help us to apply this commandment more effectively is that all of the commandments point out sin and protest against our sin. Now, sure, you've noticed that many of the commandments are phrased in the, neg- in the negative. You shall not. And the reason, I think, is because that more directly confronts our sinfulness. Like it or not, that's what we... When we read the Ten Commandments, most of us have an ouch reaction. Oh, wish wish didn't say that. And if we don't, maybe we're not being fully honest with ourselves or with the commandments. Uh, That's what the Apostle Paul noticed, too. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle comes to talks about that kind of ouch experience with God's law. And when he does so, he specifically points out one commandment that gives that is especially painful, and that is this tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Jesus once told a story. I hope it's familiar to us all. It's in Luke chapter 18. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed, and I quote, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Now, as I read that, I think that was probably true. This man probably was uh, a very good citizen, a good neighbor. He was probably respected by everyone around him. And yet he had a, a sense of false security. His attempt to relate to God was based on what he did and did not do. The other man, the tax collector, prayed very honestly, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we're told that he is the one who went home from prayer justified and truly at peace with God. He is our role model here. This is the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's not based on what the tax collector did. Uh, He was probably a pretty bad neighbor. He was probably a terrible citizen. Uh, Maybe his family had good reasons to hate him. But he went home from prayer justified before God. And something happens when we are justified before God. That's the point at which God begins to write his law on our hearts, when it begins to be something internal that's inside of us, not just an external rule and standard. We read about a bit of this in the reading from Jeremiah 31. Let me read a few verses again. Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of God and says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Notice the tight connection between forgiveness 
and having God's law written in our hearts and minds inside of us. Now, this comes because then when we recognize that we can be fully forgiven in Christ, we stop defending ourselves against God's law. Most of us are have this ouch reaction when we read God's commandments, and we become defensive. We try to push it off like the Pharisee did. We try to tell ourselves and God how good we are, that really the, this ouch experience is not appropriate. We try to proclaim our own righteousness. This tells us something, I believe, about the, the nature of forgiveness and the nature of faith. Faith is, I believe, always in the present. Now, I have not yet believed tomorrow, and I only have a distant memory of believing in God's promises yesterday. Each of us lives in the present, and at the present, we have to trust in God's forgiveness and his justification. So faith is always in the present. It's always now. But at the same time, to keep things in balance, we should see that God's covenant with us is eternal. God established a covenant with us before we knew it, before we were born. Of course we can't understand that, so don't worry about trying. And his covenant with us lasts into eternity. It's from eternity into eternity. But our faith is always in the present. So in a certain sense, we are always every day starting over, like the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. Do I say today, look how good I am, or do I say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? In Proverbs 4, verse 23, we're told this. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. How do we guard our hearts? I believe the key is to recognize that every day we have to start over. Wrestling with God's commandments and recognizing that in light of commandments, we are a sinner. Who of us did not covet something this morning? I'm sure we all did. So every day we have to start over again by saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And in that way, we are guarding our hearts. But be be very clear here, that we do not need to remain in guilt. Guilt is not something that should characterize our lives. Sometimes people have guilt, strong feelings of guilt, perhaps false guilt, that shapes everything you do. We don't need to have that. Uh, because we can be aware, conscious of, and know that we are fully forgiven, just as the, the tax collector was in Jesus' story. And this can be right now, in the present. Real trust in God's grace and forgiveness is always a present experience. Something I'll have to do it again tomorrow, and I only have a vague memory of trusting God's promises yesterday. It's present right now. I'm afraid that sometimes we have a bit of phoniness, a lack of authenticity among us as Christians. Perhaps our witness is weak, Perhaps church becomes boring. Perhaps our relationships become ugly. Perhaps prayer is almost non-existent. And our influence in the world is marginal. Our witness to the gospel, silenced. Why? I think it's at this point 
that we have to really remember and practice faith in the present. Right now, this minute, each of us has to be trusting in God's promises, and then there will be something deep, authentic, and true. This is walking in the truth in a biblical sense. This is authentic faith. Now, I want to end this morning in a way that's different than what we normally do. Uh, that is, I would like us, for a few moments, to divide into groups, if this is possible, groups of three or four or five people. Feel free to change seats or move around a little bit. And in our groups, I would like us to discuss, for just a couple minutes, some very hard questions. They should be a uh, showing up on the screen above us. This has to do with coveting in our world today. First is, what is the relationship between coveting, media, and advertising? Then ask, does advertising cause you to covet? And if so, in which way? Uh, and could you be interested in an, in an advertisement if you did not covet? Is it possible to stop coveting? How? Uh, is coveting necessary for business and ordinary life? And what does coveting do to marriage? Those are very difficult questions. Uh, this is asking you to be a little bit vulnerable as you talk with each other. Be careful with what you do, with what anyone tells you. But if we could, let's take a couple minutes to shuffle around here, sit next to someone, maybe someone you've not met before, and discuss some of these questions. So let's take a couple moments to, for discussion. Yeah? Are they up on the screen? Oh. Let me give you the questions again. Sorry, I have to reopen my computer. Okay. Questions. Now, here are the questions I would suggest. What is the relationship between coveting and advertising? Two. Does advertising cause coveting? Could you be interested in an advertisement if you are not coveting? Is it possible to stop coveting? Is coveting necessary for business and daily life? And is, what does coveting do to marriage and family life? After you've had a couple minutes to discuss things, I will close in prayer. I'm sure our conversation could go on for hours, uh, but I think it would be better for us to close in prayer, and then we'll have the, invite our music team to come back up, and we can have uh, some, some more worship music. So let's pray for a moment. Father in heaven, we recognize that you have been listening to all of our conversations here this morning. Help us to wrestle with you, honestly. Help us to come away trusting in your grace, your forgiveness, your justification ever more deeply. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.